0: This episode was created on traditional, unceded Coast Salish territories of the Songhees and Wasanich people. You're listening to Beyond the Jargon, a jargon-free look at graduate students and their research journey here at UVic. Welcome to Beyond the Jargon. I'm your host for today, Max Munday. And I have Kevin Jackman, a science master student in the studio with me today. How's it going?
1: Very well. Thank you, Max. Appreciate you having me here.
0: Yes, of course. So, Kevin, your research involves observing thyroid hormone in both humans and amphibians. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, so basically we kind of use tadpoles of the American bullfrog Mm -hmm. as a surrogate to study human thyroid hormone. just so happens that Even though we're divided by 260 million years of evolution, the thyroid hormone is the exact same molecular structure as we have in uh, in us. And so by studying the system in the frog, we can actually kind of infer things that are going on in the dynamics of uh, the process there in our, our tissues as well.
0: Okay. Interesting. How did we get to the point of knowing that we could use bullfrog tadpoles to study uh, human thyroid hormone?
1: Um, I guess it was just a pretty pretty clever inference that someone made when uh, I can't quote you from who, but uh, it was discovered that that thyroid hormone is the driving force behind metamorphosis for these these frogs going from a tadpole to a mature frog. Mm-hmm. It's 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 entirely thyroid hormone driven, and when before they metamorphose, they actually their whole body is is a thyroid, and so you can actually give them thyroid hormone and and induce metamorphosis when you want it to happen, in a, in a realm where you are ready to observe it.
0: Okay. Um. So by a thyroid, do you mean like that it is thyroid free or like thyroid a thyroid is in like an entire thyroid
1: yes yeah, sorry so so correct uh, thi- no circulating thyroid hormone so there's there's a couple of thyroid hormones and, and none of them are, are circulating in the body at this point
0: okay and so when you inject thyroid hormone or uh, place thyroid hormone into the tadpole then they go through metamorphosis uh, correct correct okay. is it harmful to put them through metamorphosis early
1: you know possibly so. An unfortunate endpoint of this molecular research is that uh, we actually study some some molecules that are very finicky, mm-hmm. and so they don't last very long. So we do actually have to to harvest them from the tadpoles to, to learn about the system, and so we do have to uh, to effectively put down all of our research animals.
0: Okay. We talked a little bit about what thyroid hormone does in tadpoles, how does it affect humans?
1: Thyroid hormone is it's really responsible for, for myriad things in the body. It, it's really dynamic. Um, it, it affects lots of different tissue development. Um, one of the neatest aspects where this research is, is really relevant is uh, around the perinatal time in, in like uh, childbirth. And from when you have uh, a child in the womb and between the time right before they're born and after they're born, there's a, a spike in thyroid hormone that is uh, equivalent to how it happens with metamorphosis. And so if you if you think about it, these babies right before they're born are living in an aqueous environment just like these tadpoles. Mm-hmm. And and they come out and now they have to use lungs and breathe oxygen. And, and these, these adult frogs do something similar where they actually no longer live in the water. They breathe oxygen. They used to have gills. Now they have lungs. And it, it's really wild the, the transformation that thyroid hormone can, can cause in different organisms.
0: Mm-hmm. So it's almost like tadpoles are in a fetal or a human fetal state until they metamorphose and I don't know if I'm yeah, that. Yeah, in a way, right. Yeah, it's really it's like really
1: p- wild how similar, right? I mean they, they're in a state where they can fend for themselves, you know, unlike a like a, a, f- a fetus that we're carrying. But yeah, really similar and really interesting in that aspect and you can see some sort of uh, evolutionary core there, a beginning of, of why they're so similar and the molecules the same and such. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, one thing that I remember uh, reading from uh, one of your abstracts or uh, that you were going to present very soon uh, was something about uh, olfactory senses and the thyroid hormone?
1: Yes, yes, that's uh, that's the tissue that uh, that I'm focusing on. And mm-hmm. so, as we just barely discussed, um when when thyroid hormone causes the metamorphosis from a tadpole to a a full adult frog, the the tadpoles are not only in an aqueous environment, but they're vegetarian. And they actually, part of that conversion process is that they, they start living on land and they actually become fully carnivorous. And mm-hmm. so there's a large amount of development in, in their uh, who's hunting them, who their predators are, and what prey and food they're looking for. So there, there's a lot of uh, tissue changing in, in the olfactory system. Mm-hmm. And so when that's thyroid hormone-driven, if there's a disruptor or something in the environment that, that is messing that up, then uh, you can. It will really affect the survival of the tadpole or the frog, uh, as far as avoiding predators and finding its own food.
0: Are you working with a team that is looking at a bunch of different effects of the thyroid hormone? Um, you're doing olfactory senses. Is there someone who's looking at, you know, other parts of the? Uh, of the body and how it's affected.
1: Um, well, the the lab that I've been working in has has been looking at other tissues in the past, mm-hmm. mainly focusing on the differences in like back skin and tail fin. There, so like where the tail fin, the tadpoles have a tail that's completely absorbed into the the body during metamorphosis. So that tissue has different signaling and different pathways being involved than the back skin, which remains and actually develops further. Olfaction is new not only in this lab but uh, pretty much uh, around the world. No one really knows much about the basis of it, so it's kind of a neat project. I'm we're collaborating with several schools across Canada, oh, yeah. um, including UBC and uh, University of Waterloo um, and University of Lethbridge, and we're doing. They actually have some behavioral studies they're conducting with olfaction and and disruption from uh, like wastewater and anthropogenic uh, human chemical waste and how that may may play into disruption there, and so they were trying to tie in their behavioral observations with a molecular observation on my end Mm -hmm. to try and uh, kind of elucidate what's what's going on here and how we can uh, use molecular tests to see how disrupted the environment is from these chemicals.
0: Can you enlighten us on what the behavioral changes have been, or at least the things that they've found? Let's not so much get into um, EDC compounds yet. We'll talk mm-hmm. about that in a little bit. But um, yeah, what are some disruptions that they've seen in, let's say, abnormal thyroid hormone changes?
1: Um, I, I don't want to say too much because I believe uh, it's, it's my friend and she she's about to present, I think, at the same conference that I'll be at in a few weeks. Mm-hmm. But she, she's she got all of her data up to ready to present. And But uh, kind of in a nutshell... They have a, a very simple behavioral test where they, they release the tadpole and they have predatory cues, and the, like where the tadpole would smell the evidence of a predator and it can avoid or, or go near. And so then they, they do it with an undisrupted water. And then when you add some of these uh, uh, cocktails of, of wastewater chemicals that, that humans are, are, are flushing into the environment, then uh, there has been evidence that they have not been able to, to detect. The, the predatory smells. Okay.
0: Let's go into uh, your research on uh, these tadpoles and endocrine disrupting compounds in household products. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about your research there.
1: Basically, uh, we threw together a cocktail from um, a bunch of past literature with environmentally relevant concentrations of, of all of these chemicals that are kind of a, uh, an amalgamation of things that are used in your personal care products, like you said, mm-hmm. and like just everything from, from hair care to hand sanitizers, things like that that just get washed down the sink, flushed down the toilet, and uh, they all end up in the wastewater stream and all end up back in the environment. And uh, especially in cases without any sort of water treatment, where these chemicals have the chance to be broken down, they're really they're they're flooding into the environment, and their their effects are almost unknown. They're they're really it's been dumped out before anyone has even studied what effect it might have. Mm. So it's kind of a it's a scramble catch up process that's been it's it's difficult to to really. Figure out all the sublethal effects these chemicals have on animals and plants and and the environment in general.
0: Yeah, totally. So, uh, let's call the endocrine endocrine disrupting compounds EDCs for now. Perfect. Um, what are some well known EDCs? So things like is alcohol one peroxide? What? Uh...
1: Uh, so a really interesting one that comes to mind is uh, actually that this lab helped bring to the to the light. There is uh, a triclosan triclosan is actually something that it's a it's an antibiotic and it's been included in almost everything you can think of um in the last few years uh if you ever use the hand sanitizer soaps that are offered everywhere triclosan is usually a main ingredient in that it's a it's a it's an antibacterial and um it's in lots of things plastic toys clothing things they include it in a lot of things to help try to keep things sanitized Mm -hmm. and um it's now been found to be an an endocrine disrupting chemical, and doesn't just serve an antibiotic purpose with with bacteria, but actually is messing up eukaryotic systems like frogs or humans, and and is is actually causing some some endocrine issues. Mm-hmm. So triclosan, I believe, just recently, as far as soon as even a couple of weeks ago, the the United States, I believe, just announced a formal ban for the hand sanitizers, which is which is a really big or the maybe not the hand sanitizers specifically, but of these antibiotics in these these hand sanitizers because they're finding they're starting to cause more harm than help.
0: Mm-hmm. So is it mainly antibiotics that uh, are the, like, EDCs are mainly an- antibiotics, or is it other things as well? It,
1: it really is a a, a big mix of, of all kinds of chemicals, and they are things that, that are novel discoveries, things like triclosan, that no one would have thought. You can't really, like, look at a compound and say, oh, that would, you know, interact with, with the endocrine system, and so... It's it's really just a matter of, of finding them, and so that because like that was supposed to be an antibiotic only and have no endocrine disrupting ability, mm-hmm. and so it's it's there's a lot out there that we've been finding and a lot out there that are happening that we still have no idea that we're causing harm to ourselves with.
0: Yeah, totally. So these compounds are we're finding that they're also harmful to humans, or is it are there some that are just harmful to uh, to amphibians versus like harmful to humans?
1: Uh, yes. Well, using there, there's a lot of studies out there that I, I don't have familiarity with, and I apologize. But but as far as finding eukaryotic harm, which is eukaryotes being uh, the the more advanced animals, such as amphibians or mammals, with mice or humans, that if it is disrupting those systems, then yes, it can definitely be inferred that it, it's involved with human endocrine disruption as well.
0: Okay. So basically, you're finding these the EDCs in wastewater. Yes. So why is it alarming, or why is it, I guess, disturbing that uh, we're finding it in wastewater, where usually water becomes treated once it is consumed, or like.
1: <laughs> so I th- yeah, I think I know kind of where you're going here, yeah. and that's that. Um, it's we do have. Different areas have different amounts of wastewater treatment. And Mm -hmm. so, and there's also been studies that have found that different treatment systems, and this all goes into the realm of of wastewater civil engineering, which I am not as versed in, but there are, in general, the the ability to break down a bunch of these compounds into less poisonous and less damaging forms is is what they're aiming to before they release them into the environment to cause as little damage as possible. There is evidence in some studies that out of these, thousands or even millions of reactions occurring in these reactors that they're making some compounds even more dangerous based on on catabolism and as these are broken down you don't know there's just there's so many compounds that it's it's so hard to to know their effects on everything but the goal is to try and not cause more damage than was there before and so Mm -hmm. so as far as the general flow of things go it's it's a more treatment, the better. You wanna you you don't wanna add a bunch of uh, synthetic chemicals that weren't there in the first place, and then expose the environment to them. And so in in some areas, I won't name any specifically, but when there's no wastewater treatment, a lot of the the debate and talk goes over like uh, fecal matter and that that issue. So if there's like a grate or something that stops that, and there's no solid waste getting out, people are saying that that, that that's fine. It's not going out there, but it's all of this slew of synthetic chemicals that are not being stopped just by a manual grate that could be causing a problem that we're trying to investigate that that are causing a lot of sub-lethal effects where the animals aren't dying but they're having a lot of issues Mm -hmm.
0: okay Obviously, taking these compounds out of our uh, household products. Uh, you talked a little bit about like using other chemicals to take them out, where like that would be more harmful to, to humans or to you, eukaryotic organisms. What is our best way, other than um, abstinence, to get rid of the products? Or like the EDCs in uh, in our wastewaters.
1: Yeah, so it's just I think I see where you're going there as yeah. well. With uh, you know, like if you think of the three R's with like reduce, reuse, recycle. Yeah. Everyone talks about recycling, but recycling is actually the third part of that program, right? Reducing, and 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 stuff is is the is the the first part upstream where you can be more efficient than just recycling everything. Is to stop using as much. So yeah, yeah the first prevention being the first step of of trying to reduce how much synthetic chemical uh, you are you know dumping down the toilet or down the sink or such maybe uh just being mindful of that but so as not to revert uh, society all the way back to some sort of a caveman lifestyle yeah. right you don't have to just dismiss all of the new technologies and comforts is that if you're going to put those things down in into your wastewater is is try and take care of them right so the treatment and so a lot of Treatment plants just consist of large reactors of a bunch of uh, uh, bacteria that are are specialized in breaking down in compounds that can break them down in an enclosed environment before they are then kicked back out into open environment.
0: Should we worry about long-term effects of EDCs in both uh, tadpoles and people?
1: Scientifically and objectively, without data, I can't exactly make a claim. But I believe, uh, if you want a personal opinion, I believe there's been, there's definitely been deep and far reaching effects that are already in the environment, they're already out there, they're already uh, manifesting themselves, mm-hmm. and that we're already multiple steps behind, and that the catch up uh, process is absolutely necessary. And we're gonna, we're gonna. Get ourselves to a point where we're no longer able to catch up.
0: Yeah, totally. Do you think that um, with catching these things at this moment, do you think that we'll be able to uh, get back to where we were, or do you think that like things are irreversible now, and we'll just we have caused ourselves irreversible damage?
1: Yeah, well, I definitely hope that the the, the latter is not the case. Um, you you can't say it's too complex and long term for sure, but. I believe that you know humans are pretty incredible when they need to be and if they can if you can band together and create a kind of a uh, sea change in mentality and start getting people to to get behind this and really actually care about the space they live in and not just about all the creature comforts and oh that's once that's down the toilet I don't care anymore it's not in my in my house I don't it's not my problem. Yeah. If you can develop the change in that mentality, I think the technology and the efforts and, and all of the discoveries and, and things will come with it when when human minds are, are shifted that way. So it's just, just a mentality change in culture.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, this might not be your line of work, but uh, how do you think that we can foster that change?
1: <sighs> just... Uh, in a positive way in a positive way there's there's a big clash that uh, that I see in my obviously anecdotal and in my you know small realm of experience but there's a big clash where there's people that that fight it and and don't want to be bothered by a lot of the green movement and then the green movement responds with a, with aggression or with something so there's there's a clash and there's a fight and that just breeds more clashing and fighting and so if you can just somehow using positivity to show that this is just a better way to do things and and if you want to be alive and healthy and your kids and their kids to be alive and healthy then this is just a, a cultural mindset that needs to be adopted and, the, and and battling people and getting aggressive over it is not going to get us anywhere it just ends up in a stalemate so I, my take is to try to continue setting examples and and people slowly will will move that way and generation by generation you can see the mindset changing so it's just it's a slow movement but if you're always going in the right direction i think it'll eventually happen for sure there's a a little allegory like with the the canary in the coal mine and so the down in the coal mines they'd have the miners would bring a canary with them and the canary was much more sensitive to toxic fumes and gases and they'd be working and when the canary fell over dead everyone would get out of the mine and they could save everyone's lives before they died as well because you know they were a little bit bigger and stronger and, and wouldn't succumb as easily and so these, these bullfrogs are considered sentinel species in the environment and they soak up all these chemicals and all these products through their skin as they live in, in kind of an aqueous water and land environment and so they're much more affected and they actually, you'll see them and they're dying off in droves already. They're, they're already, it's, they're, they're, their populations are dropping significantly and so they're our canary in the coal mine and that's the idea is to try and learn that lesson before you know it goes any farther.
0: let me know that during your undergrad you were interested in mixing research on environmental science and gene splicing. I want to know how this project suffices your want to research both things.
1: Yes and that's definitely like I think a very taboo area as far as uh, combining demographics there. So there's a I just I initially saw an interest in these these genes and 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 DNA in general kind of as Legos where they're kind of these inter intermixed pieces, right? and you can take these same pieces that can be used in other sets and you can make that set work better and and there's there's definitely a big clash in, in the Gmo world and in that and 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 understandably so there's a lot of misinformation there and, and and there's a lot of power in genetic modification so it can be a scary thing. but the idea was to try and foray into that realm where, Plants that had natural abilities to to soak up heavy metals and, and 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 toxic chemicals, where they soak them up and store them, and can get them out of the environment. Uh, if you can you can upregulate genes like that, make these plants do a really good job at what they do, and it's kind of like a an advanced bioremediation. So that that was definitely uh, a realm I wanted to head into, and it's kind of melding more into a kind of just maybe more environmental consultation and kind of trying to. Take a scientific approach toward helping to to help write policy and kind of defend uh, the environment as far as uh, the future of government and commercial and and scientific endeavors.
0: Mm-hmm. I bet that uh, when talking to people about how you are interested in environmental sciences and gene splicing, that you did get a lot of pushback of being, people being like. Oh, yeah, <laughs> they
1: said those do not mix. And I said, you know, just just hear me out, and it takes a little little more explaining even than you know that we have time for on here, but but it's definitely a different view. It's not a black and white thing. It's uh, I guess it's kind of an altruistic view where I have this image of an incorruptible way of of helping the environment without abusing it. And I don't know how realistic that is, you know in 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 mass human culture, but But I like to think that one day, you know, we can we can help ourselves more than hurt ourselves.
0: And it seems like your research is going in the right direction of being like, okay, so let's find a way to um, get these harmful chemicals out of our systems. And like, how are we going to do that? But
1: yeah, hoping so. One step at a time, one step at a time.
0: Finally, I guess, how do you hope that your research will benefit our knowledge on uh, both human thyroid hormone and I guess, amphibian thyroid hormone, as well as, I guess, um, our knowledge on EDCs.
1: That's mm-hmm. twofold kind of that I'm hoping for, and that's that this lab that, that I work in, at the Helbing Lab, has a twofold approach, one with the ecotox standpoint, and the other one just being the actual kind of more pure biochemical research, endocrine, learning about the thyroid hormone pathway, because it's not super well known even in humans with this olfaction research, um, there was actually some really, a really recent paper that came out. It was in, 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 in mice or rats, not not in, in, in amphibians, but uh, something really interesting is epigenetics. And that's where there's, instead of just genetics, there's actual a further play deeper than that, where your DNA is, is rolled up in knots and there's different parts that are accessible and not accessible. And these environmental disruptors, they mess with that interplay and so different parts of your DNA gets locked up or opened up and you you express your all your genes differently than you normally would and so something that is a neat tie in they found that introducing olfactory traumas like like a really like a, a big powerful predator scent or something that would would scare the organism would induce a change epigenetically and that that change in their DNA folding was actually generational. They was, it was sustained through their children and their children. And so these, these effects that you have, even if your gene is there, the disruption to your gene and how you can express your genes and have a healthy functioning body can actually be manifest through generations just mm-hmm. on what's happening to you now.
0: Interesting. So it's kind of like your DNA was one way for one generation and then um, predators were introduced to your species. Then three generations later from having those uh, predators being predators and um, you being prey, your DNA cuts some of itself off and opens itself up in other ways so that that predator is no longer a threat is that kind of what the way it goes uh just more
1: so that uh the in, it affects the interplay of what's going on inside your body so the take-home being kind of like the nature versus nurture argument and so even if so so your environment and your experiences and things that you're taking into your body mm-hmm. um are affecting the expression of your genetics okay. right as you speak and that they're finding that that effect in genetic expression is being carried through generations even if you remove the things in your environment that have caused that harm that harm could uh, proliferate through your children and your children's children already even if we've started to clean it up already so it's really wild that you can have experiential effects in your environment causing harm to further generations even though it's not genetic so there is a the the environment their their finding is starting to play as much of a role as we once thought was all genetic.
0: Mm, Okay. It's really wild. So it's kind of like we're our own worst enemy because we're doing this stuff. Right.
1: And so it becomes where if people have a mindset where that's, you know, like kind of not in my backyard or not my problem with this mindset, it actually kind of becomes your problem, right? Where if it is affecting you and your children instead of, Oh, then, then people hopefully, if I think if it involves people on a more personal level, they may be more willing to get involved and maybe to change their lifestyle a little. Totally. Hoping at least.
0: Yeah, (laughs) let's hope so. Let's, uh, I don't want to say, like, let's hope it's a scare tactic, but, like, let's finally realize that what we put into our bodies is going to affect us.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a constant battle of trying to balance what I feel in my gut and from the the work I do and what I find and not projecting that right off the bat try to take a scientific approach show people some data and evidence that 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 makes the argument for you instead of it being once again like a like an opinion versus opinion clash so yeah so it's definitely hard to balance those
0: again thank you for listening to beyond the jargon on cfuv